As we are getting ready to hear God's word read, um, before Dave reads from John 15, I wanted to set the context for you. Uh, in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is, is here with his disciples in a very intimate conversation. It's intimate in part because they have sort of cloistered themselves off, so it's not that large crowd that always follow Jesus. He's really with those who he had been walking so closely with. It's also intimate because he is literally hours away from being betrayed and being killed for the sake of delivering the gospel message. And so as a result, you would understand that knowing these are his last few moments to talk with his disciples, he wanted to share with them the essence. He wanted to Take all the things he had taught them and and bring it right down to what is core, what is critical, what is central to what this life and faith is all about. So knowing that, you know that what he had to say here had laser focus. I've asked uh, Dave to go ahead and read from John 15, and and you're going to pick up, Dave, I think I asked you to go, what verse? 12 through 17. 12 through 17. So it's a little less than what you see in the Bible uh, printed in the bullets, and that's okay. You can go back and read the rest later. But Dave, if you would share with us now that section of Scripture from verse 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands that you may love one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we dare to come now into a deeper understanding of your Holy Word. Guide us, Lord. Assist us when our ability to understand moves into our willingness to rationalize. Protect us, Lord, from taking the easiest application of your Word and thinking that's as far as we need to go. Let me step out of the way and let your truth be revealed that all of us today might receive the truth and power alone of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this and offer our time to you now. In his precious name, amen. Well, happy Valentine's Day. Wanted to make sure I said that to you today. We don't get Sundays on Valentine's Day all the time, so when it comes around... It's sort of a big deal. Uh, I don't know if you know how Valentine's Day began. There are several traditions, and, but most, the earliest ones all involve the church. At least one of the traditions is that there were a minimum of at least three 
clergy named Valentine who did heroic acts of love, for which Valentine's Day became something that emerged into what it is today. At least one of those traditions is that Claudius II in the 3rd century, believing that having families and loved ones back home made it difficult for soldiers to do their duty, outlawed all soldiers from getting married. But a priest named Valentine, believing that young love of soldiers was an appropriate thing to honor, secretly married soldiers to their, to their spouse um, against the order and was eventually discovered and arrested. It is also part of the tradition that while he was imprisoned, uh, Valentine, depending on your story of the tradition, either prayed for and brought about the healing of the daughter of his jailer or fell in love with the daughter of his jailer. And on the day of his execution, delivered a letter to her, signed from your Valentine. And that somehow morphed into what is this year going to be a $20 billion business. I felt so grateful this past week that I was able to go buy, purchase two cards for $14. My heart was filled with love. <laughs> Valentine's Day is a, is a day that, that some people really look forward to and they're all about it. They get excited about it and they can't wait to have those special moments with the people they love. But for some... Valentine's Day is one of those days that absolutely detests. They hate the commercialization of it, or maybe it's even more than that. Maybe they're in the middle of a love that's not a healthy love, or maybe they don't have an experience of love in their life at all. It can be a hard day. Back in uh, January of 1975, Pete Douglas and Bruce and I were sitting around in the dorm lamenting the oncoming holiday of love because none of us we're dating anyone. Pete didn't have a girlfriend, and I had just broken up with mine after a long, you know, 16 months. That's a long investment in a relationship back in that age. You know, so I was heartbroken and no prospects on the horizon. So you know how those late-night conversations in dorms can fold into something else, and we started the Davis Hall Lonely Hearts Club. We even got shirts white and red with red striping on the end, on the front, a broken, fractured heart, on the back, the Lonely Hearts Club. We wore them across campus. <laughs> the desire for love can make you do a lot of crazy things. We thought... We need to form a club because we were of the belief that Valentine's Day was about having a special person to love, not understanding perhaps the origin of the day, to understand it might be more about how to witness love in a holy and wonderful way. It's amazing how we begin to get caught up in things that actually are taking us away from the original intent which is the tie-in to what I wanted to say to you all along, and that is this. Last year, as I was thinking about this Lent, I started to think about what we would be focused on and what we would study, what I would be talking about. 
And you know that I was raised in the church, and so my thoughts went to a naturally more traditional lens. You know, a walk with Jesus to the cross, or a walk of spiritual discipleship, or something that, you know, is sort of well-lent and, well, churchy, because it's what I was raised with. But then I began to think about Lent more and more, and I began to realize that Lent itself, oftentimes in my experience and in my observation of other Lents, is really a kickoff to a six-week depression. Six weeks where we acknowledge our sinful nature. Six weeks we begin by marking ashes on our forehead to show how undeserving we are of the love that Jesus gives us. Six weeks of realizing that you don't pray enough, you don't, you don't do mission enough, uh, you're not holy enough, and, and you've got to spend six weeks really feeling pretty bad about that so that you can get to an Easter where Jesus can be resurrected, even against all odds, so that you can have a chance. Hallelujah. Now maybe that's not how it was intended, but at least it seemed to me it was possible the traditional Lenten celebrations can take that bend. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? I began to think about, I wonder if that's what Jesus wanted us to be about. So I began to spend time in prayer and scriptural reading and reflection and trying to think about what would Jesus want us to be focused on if we were going to spend six weeks getting ready for the most monumental, amazing gift that the world has ever received, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What would he want us focused on? And I began to think that the faith that we practiced in Lent was not the faith that Jesus intended. And maybe that's true beyond Lent, too. We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. That maybe the faith that Jesus intended, while the acknowledges, you know, that we are flawed people and we all have made mistakes, we all have sin, and we can even get into debate about what that means, it isn't as if Jesus in his conversation. It isn't as if Jesus, in the way he related to people, that that's what he focused on. But what did he focus on? What's the core of Jesus' message? Wouldn't that be what a season set aside to grow closer to Jesus be focused on? Shouldn't it be? And it came to me as I did my study that Jesus did have a core message. What is it? It is this. Love God, love self, love your neighbor, including your enemies. That's it. Boil down the message of Jesus to his disciples. And it seems to me the message that his first disciples gave to the world, it is as simple as this. Love God, love self, love your neighbor, including your enemies. That's it. And what if we were to take our faith and allow it to be reflecting those simple truths, to move away from the layers and layers of other things that we place upon what we think is critical to be a Christian and reduce it down to these three things. Love God, love self, love your neighbor, including your enemy. Maybe that's what 
the faith that Jesus always intended us to celebrate would be. Because it's what he said to them right as he's getting ready to leave them. The last thing he said was, this is my commandment that you, this is my commandment that you, that's it. In another conversation, several times in the Gospels, in different ways, but let's go ahead and take the one, I think the one I'm going to use for my mind is Luke. It is. Someone asked, hey teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the real question, see, for, for this lawyer. He wants to know exactly what, what's the bottom line. What's the minimum? I've got to pass this to get through the course. Thou shalt love your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And thou shalt love your neighbor as? That is all that is necessary, Jesus said. And then we could go on and on. And I have a listing here of numbers of scriptures where Jesus comes back to where his disciples, where even Paul, who could be prickly, would say that we are to be defined by the character of the love that we share with God, self, and our neighbors, including our enemies. That's the faith. Well, what if we were to focus on the faith as Jesus intended it to be for a few weeks? Which is what I'm suggesting. Now, it sounds like a simplification of the faith, and certainly it is. It's much easier if someone were to come up to you and ask you, so what is your Christian faith all about? What would you say? I think people have a hard time with that answer. They get lost in all kinds of, well, you know, who is Jesus and who are us? What's sin? And we, what if we could simply say, if someone asks us, what is your faith about? Well, I think it's about this. It's about loving God. It's about loving self. And it's about loving our neighbors, including our enemies. That's what it's about. And what if when they heard us say that, they went, yeah, that's the kind of person you are. I get it. Yeah, that's where it gets complicated. If we could take the faith at the core of what Jesus called us to do and began to think about those things, we might consider what that love felt like, looked like, called of us, required of us, what we could give to others through that love. And that's what we could focus on. So guess what we're going to focus on for the next six weeks? The faith that Jesus intended. And this week, through the blog, through the conversation, through the class I'm teaching tomorrow night, a faith where we simply love God, love self, and love our neighbors, including our enemies. Now, to know how to do that, there is one thing that's required. We've got to figure out how to stay close to Jesus. Because he's the one who knows how to do it. He's the one who did it really well. I don't do it really well on my own. Can I just be confessional about that? I've got to figure out what that love looks like and how to live it out. And so there's a need for me to learn how to love as Jesus loved. And I want to share with you some very quick things and thoughts today around how Jesus loved that we might want to be paying attention to if we're going to look at the core of the faith that Jesus intended. First, Jesus loved as a way of life. Jesus loved as a way of life. 
Jesus didn't love only through emotion. You know how I think most of us love. We separate out the way we act from the emotion that we have. You know, we, we wait until we feel a feeling of love, and that's when we're in love. And we have different kinds of love that we share with different kinds of people. We love our family. We love our siblings. We love our spouses. We love our significant others. Uh, we love dark chocolate. We love uh, Thai food. You know, we love the University of Michigan. We love Michigan State University. And if you were really smart and saved, you would love Duke. I mean, we love different things in different ways. But it's about emotion. But Jesus didn't love out of his emotion. Jesus' love was a way of life. It set the direction for his life. He chose to move in a particular way and relate to people in a particular manner out of the assumption that he was going to live out of a core of love. His love set the course of his life from the minute he claimed his ministry to go right to the places he went through all around, circular throughout Galilee, encountering all kinds of people to eventually take him to Jerusalem. And the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus loved as a way of life. Are we able to learn how to love as a way of life? Rather than figuring out who we love, which by definition means who we don't. I want to suggest to you that Jesus loved selflessly. Jesus loved selflessly. How are you doing with selfless love? Because I'm just going to be confessional. All of my love, as I've been able to figure out, has some measurement about what it gains me back. I love you. I love those things you do for me as long as you don't stop doing those things for me. I love you when we are in this romantic bubble of love, but when we take it out on the road and have to figure out who's right on directions, the love doesn't feel as strong. Amen? I love you as my child as long as you... Dot, dot, dot. Jesus loved so selflessly that he was willing... He was willing to love even when the ones he was loving was hurting him or hurting him. Their actions did not predicate, was not predicated on how they were treating him. He chose to love them. That was the end of the conversation. Now whatever else happened after that, it didn't change the beginning of the conversation. He chose to love on. Or it shows his love selflessly. Jesus loved unconditionally, and he close that's very close to the unselflessly, but unconditionally meaning he did it without judgment. Can you imagine a Christianity where we actually love people without judgment? Can you imagine a Christianity where we didn't sit around and say, well, first of all, let me explain to you what your sin is before I really let you in and, and begin to really love you. I think this is one of the hardest ones for Christians. I think there's something in eight about us that says, somehow I have to judge you for me to be really good about loving you well. I just don't see it in Jesus. 
In fact, quite the opposite. The things that got Jesus in trouble was the fact he was willing to love people that other people said very clearly are not worth loving. Thomas Merton, I'm pretty sure it was Thomas Merton said it this way. He said, uh, um, our agenda as disciples is to love others first without considering if they're worthy of it. Jesus loved unconditionally. I want to suggest to you that Jesus loved authentically. What does that mean? It means Jesus loved as Jesus loved. And Jesus wasn't willing to change who he was to get you to love him. You know what it is to twist your life into a pretzel so that you can get someone to love you? So one day you discover that you're trying to love somebody not out of your authentic self, but you're trying to be a character of what they need or want. Have you ever seen that happen? It's painful. Jesus loved authentically. And when people were angry at him because of who else he was also loving or because of the things that he said, did you ever see in scriptures where Jesus crumbled and said, oh no, I'm sorry, I really didn't mean that, I'm not going to do that? No, he stood up and said, no, I really do mean this, and I'm going to love you more, even as you're angry at me, even as you're deciding whether you want me or not. This is the kind of love that Jesus loved by. Can you imagine what it would be if we could raise up our children, and oh, by the way, each of us in this room, to learn how to love without falling down and giving up the authenticness of our life to love others? Let me say it more bluntly. As a father of two daughters, I don't want my daughters having to change who they are as the people they are so that other people will love them. Is that said bluntly enough? Jesus loved authentically. Because authentic love has its own power. And he wasn't willing to surrender that power to get other people to love him. That was a choice they'd have to make. But here's who he was, and he remained consistent throughout his entire ministry. Still does today. And Jesus kept renewing his love. The scriptures, you'll see Jesus, he does these things, he's with 5,000 people, he feeds them uh, bread and, and uh, you know, beverage and food and fish and whatever. And, and then all of a sudden, hey, where'd Jesus go? Oh, he went off by himself, he's praying again. Hey, where'd Jesus go? He went off to the temple to worship. Hey, where'd Jesus go? I don't know. He keeps wandering off to be alone with God. Hey, Jesus, how come you keep going off to be alone with God? Because I have to spend the rest of my life with you. And to be able to put up with you, I need to take time to go and renew myself and the love that God alone gives. If we were to love as Jesus loved, we would have to take time to go and renew our love and I have seen it over and over again, and I have experienced it in my life, my life when I have let love wane because I just keep trying to love harder or more without renewing the source of my love. Jesus knew that you aren't given a, a measurement of love that's supposed to last an entire lifetime. You're given an invitation to keep practicing and being resourced so that you can continue to love. Jesus took time 
Jesus had to take time to renew his love so he could continue to love in the way in which he wanted to. If he has to do that, what about us? Taking the time to renew our ability to love is critical. And last, I want to share with you, this is my observation. These are all my observations, so you can take them or leave them, but if you're going to leave them and not think they're true, then you've got to be able to do it by looking at Scripture. Because this is what I think Scripture is telling us. But this is the last one. In his wake, Jesus left, because of his love, people's lives who were better. Whose lives were better and improved. Whose lives were changed. Whose identities were given respect and dignity and hope. Jesus left that kind of witness in his wake of love. So you really don't know the fullness of the measure of the love that you give to other people unless you're also willing to see how your love affects other people. If it diminishes or demeans, if it takes from other people more than it gives, then I'm questioning whether or not it's the love that Jesus wants us to love. What's the wake of the love that you're leaving in your life? That we're leaving in our life corporately. We're going to be talking about these ways in which Jesus loved throughout this week on the blog, and I'm going to invite you to continue to pray about them and think about them as we think about the faith that Jesus intended for us. What would happen if we were to love in this manner? What would happen if we were to say, not only with our words, but by the conduct of our life, what's your faith about? It's about loving God, it's about loving self, and it's about loving our neighbors, including our enemies. Let me suggest this. Andy Stanley, who's a megachurch pastor in Atlanta, um, son of, of uh, uh, what's his dad's name? I forgot his dad's name. He was a famous preacher too, but I forget right now. It'll come to me. Anyway, he was over in China, and he was on a tour, a group, and they went to a factory where they were going to... Um, you know, take a tour and see, you know, what the manufacturing and so on. And so they go through the tour, but as the tour starts, there's this younger woman who's there, and the, the tour director, who's the manager of the plant, says, this woman's going to come along with us because she's learning to be a tour guide, so we want her to see how it's done. So she's just she's part of the factory. That's why she's with us. That's fine. Great. So they go on the tour, and they have the tour. And at the end of it, the tour guide says, any questions? And a few folks ask questions about things that they had seen. And then this woman, who was a training guide, a tour guide in training, raised her hand, and, and she had a question, and that seemed odd. And I said, well, what's your question? And she turned to Andy Stanley, and she said, Are you, so you're a pastor? You know, she had heard the conversation through the tour. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I serve a church in Atlanta, Georgia, in America. So I have a question. What's your question? Why don't all people in America go to church? I'm, uh, I'm not sure I know how to answer your question. She talked about the fact that as a young adult, she'd been converted by the love of Jesus Christ. She'd been converted by a very small fellowship of Christians who gathered together in a house church. And she continued to love to go to church. And in her country and in that time, and uh, sometimes, depending on the political reality, sometimes it was easy to go to church and sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes churches were open, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were accessible, sometimes they weren't. 
she longed to be part of a church community on a regular basis. She said, so in your, in your country, there are churches everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, you can get to church if you want to get to church from where you live. Almost everywhere, that's true. And there's nothing says you can't go, right? Well, that's true. So how come everybody doesn't go to church? Again, I'm not suggesting that going to church is the automatic answer to how you get into heaven. I already told you what I think Jesus said it was. But if we're the disciples of Jesus Christ who are living our life focused on loving God, loving self, and loving our neighbors, including our enemies, do you understand that I think your question's a valid one? In all my years, I've never heard someone who doesn't go to church say, well, the reason I don't go to church is because these people love too powerfully. I've heard all other kinds of reasons. Have you? I've heard them all. And not one of them in my entire life has been, well, those people love too well, too honorably. So my brothers and sisters of the disciples of Jesus Christ, who came to give you this very simple message. I'm asking you, are you willing to dare to be the person, are we willing to dare to be the people in this world, in this community, who are sold out entirely and totally only on these things? You know what they are? What? To love. To love. And to love your including. Do those things. Focus on those things and leave in our wake people's lives who are changed for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because that's the faith that Jesus intended.